good afternoon everybody and or good morning or good evening we have a truly global audience today my name is eric berglof i'm the director of the institute of global affairs at the lse school of public policy we're absolutely delighted to be hosting this panel on the global response to the COVID-19 pandemic. We are meeting at a time when the epicenter of the epidemic has traveled from China via Europe to the United States, but the pandemic has not yet taken hold in the emerging and developing world. And that is very likely that Africa will become uh, the next epicenter. And as it does so, we are likely to see, you know, much higher infection rates and death rates and the economic impact is also likely to get much worse. In fact, many of the countries, particularly those that are more connected to the world economy, are already experiencing the economic impact even before the virus has taken hold. Collapsing commodity prices, falling tourist revenues, dropping remittances, massive capital outflows are already, already wreaking havoc in these economies. It's very clear that these are two intertwined crises that which have to be addressed at the same time. Without addressing the medical emergency, we are not going to be able to get the economy back on track and the economic impact is undermining the ability of countries to respond to the medical crisis. We are seeing that the virus is more virulent and more deadly than many thought and the economic hardships is tremendous, particularly in economies where people have very little savings and live from daily earnings. So, and often people have very limited possibilities to take the kind of precautions they're asked to take. But even if we didn't care about people in the emerging and developing world, we have very strong reasons to ensure that they can amount an effective response to the virus. The risk is otherwise that the virus will become endemic in the developing world and come back to haunt us in second, third and even more waves. Of course, we should also worry about the threat of dislocation of vast amounts of people who try to escape the virus and economic hardship uh, that it creates. So we need a global response, but until we, very recently, we haven't seen much of collaboration and coordination on getting such a response. Instead, countries have been closing their borders, restricting exports of essential equipment, etc. Over the last couple of weeks, there have been some serious efforts by many countries to step up, and the, the 20 finance ministers issued a, a strong communique and, and a global action plan with some important commitments, not least on the medical side. And they also provide the strong support to the IMF and the World Bank, who met for their spring meetings last week, and the regional development banks, uh, to encourage them to go even further than they have done to date. They also announced the first step in a debt moratorium and what eventually would become debt relief for the poorest countries. The problem is that even with these efforts, and, and we should give Kudos, I think, to the, I know that some representatives of the UK government is on this call and, and uh, the action plan was very much um, the responsibility of the UK government. So it's, it's good that's there, but I think it's, it's clear that we need more. It's, it, what's on offer right now is not going to be enough to meet the needs that are coming out of this crisis. We'll need to find more resources for these institutions, both the IMF and the multilateral development banks. Without them, we are not going to be able to reach those most vulnerable in these countries. We cannot drop money from helicopters over Africa, as the governments in many advanced economies are doing. The money would end up in the pockets of oligarchs and corrupt leaders and not really reach those most in need. So we have an absolutely extraordinary group of panelists today, and we are going to 
they're going to help us take stock of where we are and what's needed from now on. We have former Prime Minister Gordon Brown, who of course needs no further introduction. He was, of course, instrumental in pulling together the global response in the global financial crisis in 2008 and 2009. And he's been very much trying to encourage the world to do the same uh, at this point. The same is true for Larry Summers, who was instrumental in several international coordination exercises as Secretary of the Treasury in the Clinton administration and as chair of the National Economic Council under Obama and, of course, president of Harvard uh, for several years. We also have our own LSE director, Minus Shafiq, with a wide experience of both development policy as head of DFIT and as vice president of the World Bank and monetary policy as deputy managing director of the IMF and most recently as uh, deputy governor of the Bank of England. Uh, Prime Minister, it's a great honor for, for us to have you back here at the LSE, not in person, but in spirit and in image and, and your voice. It's a second best as so many things that we are forced to accept as we are adjusting to the current reality. We are very much looking forward to your word. Please. Uh, Eric, I I'm delighted to, to speak alongside uh, Manoush, uh, Anders and yourself, uh, who have done so much to put the LSE on the map around the world and uh, whom I respect greatly. And it's a pleasure to be with Larry uh, today because Larry and I worked together during the, global, during the global financial crisis and I learned a huge amount from what Larry had done previously as uh, Treasury uh, as Secretary and in many other roles that he's, uh, he's, he's, he's played. And we said in 2008 that global problems need global solutions. That was really the uh, mantra uh, that took us into creating the G20 as a leaders organization, creating the Financial Stability Board, and a whole series of other changes that came about as a result of the financial crisis. And I remember actually saying to the meeting uh, of the G20 right at the start when we had a dinner, I think it was April the 1st in 2009, I quoted uh, Churchill, who said that in the 1930s, people had been resolved to be irresolute, they'd been adamant for drift, they'd been solid for fluidity, and all powerful for impotence. And we <laughs> could not repeat that mistake and we must not repeat this mistake at what is this generation's rendezvous with destiny, you might say, a moment of truth for the world economy and for world uh, leaders. And there is, I think, uh, just to get to the heart of it, and I think Larry will emphasize this uh, even more uh, from his erudition, uh, there is a mismatch now between the actions that have been speedy and, and comprehensive that have been taken by many national governments to deal with the problems in their national economy uh, and what has been done uh, globally uh, by the international institutions who depend after all on the leadership uh, from the major governments of the world. And I think this mismatch is reflected in really two problems that we've really still got to deal with and really push forward. The first is uh, dealing with the health emergency and the second is dealing with the economic emergency. We cannot successfully deal with the economic emergency until we make progress on the health emergency. And that's why I'm very surprised that we have not properly funded yet the international efforts that are searching for a vaccine, searching for a cure, delivering therapeutics and delivering diagnostics and trying to help build the capacity and resilience of the health systems in the poorest countries. And there cannot, in my view, be a proper exit strategy if we cannot either find a vaccine 
or be able to build the capacity to test uh, uh, people and at the same time prevent a second or third round of the disease coming back from the developing countries that Eric mentioned uh, when he talked about the problems that face Africa and the emerging markets over the next uh, uh, few weeks. So it's absolutely vital, uh, given that we've been through a G20 meeting, we've been through an IMF meeting, we've been through a World Bank meeting, that we find a way to fund the global health initiatives uh, that are now in play. We have the scientists, we have the researchers, we have the epidemiologists, we have the virologists, they're all working, in my view, collegiately and well, but we have not properly funded them. And they're asking for $8 billion only for this year. That's only $1 per person. And it seems ridiculous that we're at this stage now in April going into May, where an appeal has been out for several weeks now for $8 billion, $2 billion for the vaccine fund, $2 billion for therapeutics, $2 billion or so, $1.5 billion, I think it is, for diagnostics. And we're still only a third funding at these important appeals. So I think the first priority must be to deal with the health problem. And I'm not just talking about, therefore, global action. I'm talking about national actions that individual countries have got to take. But if we can't bring ourselves together and organize a pledging conference that can raise that sort of money in the next few days, I think we're failing badly. And I think the EU is now about to organize a pledging conference on May the 4th. I hope it will be beyond Europe and include Japan and the Asian countries and then bring in China and America and I think there's sufficient goodwill and pressure from Africa and the emerging markets for this to be well-funded if we could agree to do it. So that's the first thing. And I think it's pretty urgent. The second is, and again, Larry will be able to talk in more detail about this, is, is what the international institutions do to prepare for this uh, next wave, which is going to hit Africa and the emerging, uh, emerging markets. I think we've got to talk about the future. We've got to talk about the balance between globalism and localization. We've got to talk about the balance between risk and security. All these issues are going to come up. There's going to have to be a rewriting of the social contract. But I think we've got to deal with the immediate problems. The debt relief offer was not big enough, in my view, for the 76 low-income countries in the world. It doesn't make sense for me that you just extend it to December. I think it's got to go through uh, to the end of 2021. I think it's got to find a better way of including the private sector. And I think it's got to find a way, obviously, of funding the multilaterals uh, to give the same offer. Now, that hasn't yet all happened, and it should happen quickly. The proposal for special drawing rights is complex because if it goes beyond 600 billion, it would require a decision of uh, the legislators, the US Senate and Congress in particular. But I am surprised that we haven't gone as far as we have yet gone in pushing for this to happen. And I do believe most countries in the world now recognize it's necessary. And I do believe there is probably a formula that could be agreed that uh, uh, transitions some of these uh, SDRs into the poorer countries as a decision of the richer countries to use them in this way. And that could be for existing SDRs and it could be for the new ones. And the third thing is the resources of the international institutions. Uh, they will not be big enough to cope with this crisis. I saw what happened in 2009. IBRD had to be trebled. Uh, it went far beyond the assets that the World Bank uh, were able to offer at that time. And so we have to be able to put them in a better position to deliver that. I think uh, if they cannot recapitalize in the longer term, because we've already had a capitalization of the World Bank, then I think we've got to find voluntary means by which countries can guarantee 
uh, so that the World Bank can leverage that up in the form of grants and loans. And we have this proposal already on the table for education. And then finally, I think we've got to deal with this question of the um, fiscal sti and monetary stimulus to get us back to growth. What we've done in the last few weeks is essentially protect jobs, uh, fund healthcare, uh, and try to keep companies in existence. What we will have to do at some point quite soon, and again, I, I look to Larry to talk about this because he is right that the danger of secular stagnation is with us. Uh, the, uh, we've got to deal with the fiscal uh, psychology and we've got to deal with a, perhaps an oversensitive psychology to inflation because we have got to get the world economy back to growth and it's not going to be easy. Uh, and that means coordination. And I don't yet see the coordination. For example, America has a huge fiscal uh, deficit on its way. Uh, China is not, in my view, contributing the same amount as it did in 2008 or 9, or even what is commensurate to what is happening in Europe and America. Now, they may feel that there is no need for them to do this in China, but there is a global need for us all to be coordinated. So again, big questions for the future. But in the next few weeks, I think the coordination of the fiscal, monetary and central bank policy is going to be essential. So what has been done, the G20 action plan uh, is, uh, is, is well written uh, and it's well done by the UK Treasury, I think were the main authors of that and I thank them. But the implementation and the specifics that we're talking about, we've got to do that very quickly. And I think uh, this is a call to action and it's a call to action. Now, this is our generation's uh, moment of truth. And if we failed and people look back uh, in the future and say, when there was a global medical emergency and a global economic emergency, and we did too little too late, I think we would pay a heavy price and suffer the condescension of posterity. So it's time for action. Thanks, Eric. Thank you very much, Prime Minister. And thank you for, for those uh, important words. Larry Summers, the floor is yours. Thank you uh, very much. Uh, Gordon and uh, Eric, uh, glad to be with everyone, and it will not surprise anyone that uh, my sentiments are very, very much in the direction of uh, the Prime Ministers. Let me make uh, four or five observations, if I could. Um, first, there is not just a quantitative, but a qualitative disjunction between the domestic effort and the international effort. Domestically, we are breaking every known rule. The Federal Reserve of the United States is buying exchange-traded funds of junk bonds. We are having uh, the Bank of England is involved in, let us say it, monetary finance of the British government's budget deficits. All the taboos are being broken because that's what you do in an extraordinary emergency. On the other hand, I could more or less from memory have written the script for the last Washington meeting. Everybody said what they always say. Yes, we need to be worried about debt relief, but we need to be very careful not to deter new money. Yes, we need to be prudent about this. And every single Every single thought was the normal emanation at a moment of crisis, at a moment when domestically everything is abnormal. Now, that might make sense 
if there was something about the crisis that was uniquely local. But in fact, this crisis is much more truly global than any other crisis we have faced, precisely because the virus does not know from uh, national boundaries. And so at this point, we are suffering from a failure of global imagination on an enormous scale. It's not hard to understand uh, why there are explanations that can be found in the realm of personality, but apart uh, completely from that, the fact that this is scaring people about things that can pass international borders, the fact that of necessity there are far more travel restrictions than there were before, the fact that the meeting couldn't even happen uh, in person uh, given the circumstances, the fact that people are most concerned about their own citizens makes it understandable, but it does not make the failure um, excusable is the first uh, broad point I would uh, make. If ever there was a moment for whatever it takes reasoning, um, it is now. Second, to my knowledge, there is no country that before the virus had not fully hit, that fully estimated what its consequences were going to be not in the early days in Wuhan and in China, not in the early days in Asia, certainly not in the early days in uh, Southern Europe or in Northern uh, America, or dare I say, the United Kingdom. There is every reason to believe that that same mistake is being made in uh, the emerging uh, markets. There has been discussion, particularly in your country, of the merits or demerits, I think the demerits exceed the merits by a substantial margin, of the strategy of a race towards herd immunity as the best way to contain and manage this. We are gonna learn more about the merits of that strategy in the next few months, because in many developing countries where there are not faucets, where there are not places to uh, be isolated, where there are essentially no tests, no masks, no ventilators, there is going to be no alternative strategy to a race for herd immunity. And so we're gonna learn about the consequences of uh, that strategy. This is one of the most painful things I've ever had to say. There's an estimate circulating, and it's an estimate that was in our paper, uh, Gordon, our article, Gordon, that somebody made that there were gonna be 300,000 people who were going to perish from uh, COVID in 19 in, in Africa. I would frankly say to you, pray God that it is only that number because my best guess would be that it was between one and two orders of magnitude. That means factors of 10 greater than uh, 300,000. Uh, I sure hope uh, that I am uh, wrong. 
Third, the errors we will make will surely be errors of insufficient effort rather than errors of excessive effort. If we somehow budget too much and the IMF somehow has too much contingent finance to make available for the world, that is hardly a large problem. If the developing world's reserves are excessively augmented with special drawing rights, that is hardly a catastrophe. If an excessively ambitious framework for what after all will only be debt negotiations is put in place and the countries are able to pay, they will pay and they will do it because they will be eager to maintain their connections with the international financial uh, community. So it seems to me we need to approach this from the perspective that failure of excessive effort is really with very small cost and failure with insufficient effort is uh, catastrophic. A a very small technical point, uh, Gordon, um, you are correct that um, an SDR allocation above $600 billion requires legislative approval. However, an announcement in putting in place a $600 billion um, uh, SDR allocation with a commitment on January 2nd, 2022, in the next five-year period, a separate five-year period, that there will be another $600 billion allocation, allows the world to get to the $1 trillion target that you and I set without ever making a uh, decision that requires a legislative uh, commitment. A final thought. The word China has not been said here. Relations between China and uh, the United States Uh, perhaps even between China and a broader industrial world, are to put a mild word on it, vexed at uh, this uh, juncture. Not all of that can be or will be fixed or addressed. But it is central to the ongoing financial diplomacy. It will not be acceptable, and in all honesty, it should not be acceptable to the publics of the West that they fund substantial infusions of money into the developing world in order that China can take substantial amounts of money out of the developing uh, world under under its various loan programs. And so establishing a framework in which China's role as a major creditor, and let us not be naive and suppose that China has not garnered substantial national benefits from many of the projects 
that it has funded around the world that were funded more in a spirit of mutual interest than in a spirit of unguarded altruism. There needs to be a clear framework for thinking about the ongoing provision of finance in which China plays a central role. This can be seen as a problem, and in many ways it is, but it can also be seen as an opportunity for developing the muscles and the patterns that the world is going to need to confront any number of uh, issues in which the United States and its allies are going to have to find modus vivendi with China to deal with uh, global issues. A final thought. There is much that is going to have to be carefully considered in light of this. My good friend Janet Yellen said a couple of years ago, and I, when she said it, seemed reasonable to me, that she did not expect to see ever a major financial crisis like 2008 in her lifetime. Just two years after she said it, we're seeing one that is far worse than 2008. And 2008 was itself the culmination of a long series of financial crises, the NASDAQ bubble, Asia, Russia, LTCM, Mexico, Latin American debt, the 1987 stock market crash, and so forth. And we are now seeing unprecedented expansion um, in the role of governments in the economy. We're going to need some fundamental thinking about uh, finance going uh, forward. But even more consequentially, I would think that everyone should ponder the following. If you look at the lists of pandemic events, Different people compile them in different ways. But there are five or six of them in the last hundred years. And of those, at least four are from the last 20 years. And they are dominantly coming from emerging Asia. If you ask people why that is, I've talked to a number of the experts, nobody completely understands it. But the single most important factor, single most important factors they identify are rising urbanization, rising income and affluence, the associated substantial increases in the consumption of meat. In any world that we want to see, there is going to be rising urbanization and rising affluence in the emerging markets for a long time to come. COVID 
SARS, H1N1, MERS, these things are now coming at us at a frequency substantially greater than once a decade. We are, as a global system, not remotely prepared for a world where that's the way it's going to be for some substantial time to come. The truth is that we need to be doing more that is globally cooperative with respect to climate change than we are, and that health and pandemic threat are in the same general range as climate change and need broadly similar levels of attention, and they have not historically received 5% of the attention that climate change does. And so one additional legacy of all of this needs to be a massive stepping up of the international cooperative effort around uh, global uh, global contagious uh, disease. Thank you. Aaron, that's, if anything, call for action and, and some very ominous predictions about the near future. But, and that's something that, you know, we have been talking about this for a long time, but I think even in the midst of one of these, it's very hard to see exactly how it's going to play out and the uncertainties are tremendous. Anyhow, uh, Minush, the floor is yours. Thank you, Eric. Um, I have a uh, huge sympathy with the call to action and the need for a global response that both Gordon and Larry have emphasized. I thought what I'd do is say uh, something complimentary around what are, the, what are the implications of this crisis for the shape of the world economy that we're going to get, and what does that mean for the future of multilateral cooperation? And I'll make five points. First, on trade. We were already seeing a deceleration of the growth of global trade. And I think this crisis will accelerate that even further. Uh, we hear everyone talking about shorter and more local supply chains. And I think the rise of automation and robots mean that reshoring will become much, much more prevalent. There's been talk about it, but now I think it will actually happen that it becomes as wages become a much smaller share of production costs, we will see a rebalancing of economic activity uh, back to local, you know, back back to back to home. I think the second theme will be that we'll see a much more digital form of globalization. The movement of people and goods will likely diminish, and trade and online services is going to grow even further. And the, the shape of globalization will become much more digital. And therefore, it becomes even more important for us to sort out some of the cross-border regulatory issues around the digital economy, things like the OECD proposals around digital taxation, which got stalled, become even more important in that kind of world. Third, I think we're entering an area of financial repression. Unwinding the scale of public debts that we will have at the end of this crisis uh, will not be possible through running huge primary surpluses. I think it's just not going to be possible to have that much austerity. And inevitably, we'll be in an era where nominal interest rates are going to be below growth rates 
for a very long time. Because I think that's the only way that we'll be able to get out from under the levels of debt that we're seeing at the moment. Fourth, I think we're going to be in an era where the demand for social insurance will go up. I think the current crisis has revealed the failures of social protection in many, many countries. And the last few decades where the focus has been on shifting risks onto individuals and uh, obsessing with efficiency <laughs> will we'll shift away from that and we will see a new focus on socializing risks and providing more security, even if it is at the expense of efficiency. And then finally, in terms of the implications for international cooperation and multilateralism, I mean, I, I say this with great sadness, having spent 25 years of my career in the international system, but I fear that uh, the period in which Larry and Gordon uh, presided over the 2008 financial crisis may have been our moment of peak multilateralism for quite a while. And I think the international system is going to be much more self-interested going forward and nations will focus on narrower interests, which is why I think the case for a global response around COVID has to be very rooted in, you know, in the IMF jargon, we used to always talk about spillovers and spillbacks. Well, COVID is the quintessential spillover and spillback uh, and the costs and, and quantifying the risks and the costs of having this disease just circulate round and round the global economy with multiple waves of infection has to be at the heart of persuading what are very fairly narrow-minded nation states at the moment to participate in a global response. I also think we need to engage more non-state actors. Um, at the moment, we don't have, I think this is an obvious point, we don't have a lot of political leadership for a global response. Uh, even Europe can't muster solidarity within its own borders, much less around the world. And uh, I think encouraging what we've often described as variable geometry in terms of coalitions willing to act uh, to, de to develop not necessarily a comprehensive global response, but at least partial multilateral responses in terms of supporting uh, supporting the response is, is, is part of that. Finally, I wanted to just say something on Africa. Um, you know, I think uh, both what Eric said about it becoming the new epicenter and what Larry said about having few options to herd immunity are true. Africa is facing a triple, triple shock, the health shock, which uh, is terrifying given the health systems that are there and the density of populations in some areas. Second, there's the global spillover in terms of falling trade, access to finance, falling remittances and tourism flows. And third is the commodity price shock. We've seen what happened to oil prices in the last couple of days, but all commodity prices are taking a hit to the tune of 15 to 20%. So all those things are hitting Africa at the same time, which is why delivering on an incredibly generous debt relief package is essential to enable Africa to be able to have any domestic response. I think it's very interesting that China signed on to the G20 agreement to suspend debt payments, uh, since it is the biggest creditor to many African countries, and it has thus far refused to engage in the Paris Club process. And I think that's a huge source of hope that we need to keep China in a transparent, equitable, and fair debt relief process that is, uh, that is more generous than what's been delivered so far. 
And then finally, we need an incredibly major multilateral and donor response to building health systems in, in Africa and supporting them. The, the, well, the, the good news is that we've got the institutional infrastructure. We have Gavi, we have the Global Fund. They have a track record of dealing with things like the HIV crisis and polio. And so we have funding mechanisms in place that work through country systems that can deliver a health response if only we fund it. And the other piece, which I think is hopeful, is that almost every country in Africa today has cash transfer schemes that deliver cash to the poorest households through mobile banking. And they work very effectively, and those mechanisms are in place. And once the money is available, it will be possible to provide direct economic support to the poorest households in Africa uh, to, to provide some economic uh, economic benefits during this, during this terrible crisis. Um, so we have the infrastructure, we just need the resources. So I'll, I'll close there. Thank you. That's what I was referring to in, the, in my introductory remarks. Also, the, the, you know, we, we need these institutions to reach those <coughs> most vulnerable. Andres Velasco, we are very proud to have you at the LSE. You, you are now the Dean of the School of Public Policy, but you come with a lot of experience from working in the emerging world as a finance minister in Chile and, and uh, also as a professor thinking about these issues from a sort of more uh, uh, conceptual and uh, point of view. And I know you are very much involved in the Latin American response to the crisis. So please, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Eric. I'm uh, delighted and honored to be sharing this uh, virtual stage with Minouche with the Prime Minister and, and with Larry. Um, I was in government uh, exactly 10 years ago during the previous crisis, and, and I saw the amazing work that both Gordon and Larry did. They provided you know, leadership and insight that was very crucial back then, and are doing exactly the same thing today. So thank you for that. I want to focus on the impact uh, this crisis is having and will have on emerging economies and developing economies. And the operative phrase, I think, uh, Larry may have used it uh, once already, is whatever it takes. We all know that Mario Draghi said he would do whatever it took to save the euro. Uh, President Bush said that he would do whatever it takes to uh, defend uh, American security after 9-11. And my 10-year-old son tells me that the Avengers vowed to do whatever it takes in seeking the Infinity Stones. Don't ask me what they are, but uh, they are very important. So the question is, is the world community doing whatever it takes to address this huge, dangerous, and potentially very painful challenge? And I think what it's clear from uh, the interventions so far this afternoon, uh, it is clear from what we read in the media out there, the answer regrettably is no. We are not doing whatever it takes. The most glaring failure Gordon mentioned already, it is the failure to deliver on just, and I emphasize just, the eight billion that uh, are needed for basic medical supplies, medical equipment, and medical services around the world. 
Eight billion sounds like a lot of money, but those of us who have invo been involved in government and international finance know that eight billion is actually not that much money. And the fact that we are failing to deliver that is an extraordinary uh, failure of international leadership. Um, and of course, it is not simply a lack of generosity, it is also a lack of ability to pursue self-interest, because as Gordon pointed out, and Larry, I think, and Minush both said it, the, vir the virus knows no borders. So if poor countries remain infected, the world will remain infected. Let me focus on a couple, actually four, features of emerging and developing nations that make the economic aspect of this crisis all the more difficult and all the more painful. The first one, this is kind of obvious, but it needs to be said, is low income. You can tell a middle-class family in London, go home, receive less than your full wage for a month, come back to work, and yes, some uh, pain uh, will uh, be endured, but it is for most middle-class families in most advanced economies, a manageable story. That is, of course, not the case for the billions whose income is very much at subsistence level going for a month or two without income is simply not feasible. Second feature is informality. If you have a formal labor contract with a formal firm, that firm, if the firm gets money from the central bank or from the government or from someone, the firm can provide an insurance role. It keeps paying the worker for a few months, even if the worker is not producing. That's good for the firm because it retains some specialized workforce in place, but it's also good for the worker. The worker gets some insurance, the family gets some income. In many emerging economies, even fairly middle income or upper middle income emerging economies, one half, as much as two thirds of the labor force is employed informally. And therefore this feature uh, that could provide insurance is absent. Third, most emerging economies cannot resort to monetary financing in the way that rich countries have. In the previous crisis, the uh, United States Federal Reserve multiplied its balance sheet by a factor of four, nearly four and a half, and inflation in the United States did not budge. I suspect that if Argentina tried that, inflation and the value of the peso would indeed budge. Whether these um, vulnerabilities when it comes to money are due to past misdeeds, a checkered history, weak institutions, that may be important from an academic point of view, but from a policy and human point of view today, the fact is that simply printing domestic currency to deal with the emergency in any substantial quantities is not a way out. Last but not least, and this is probably the most important point, what these countries need is not just domestic currency, they need foreign currency. Or to put it a little bit differently, we are telling firms and the private sector to run a deficit because they will keep spending, say paying wages even though they have no income, and we're telling the government to run a deficit. And what we teach undergraduates in economics courses is that the nation's deficit, that is to say the current account, is the sum of the private and the public deficit. So if the private and the public deficit are both running big gaps, well, the nation will be running a much larger current account. 
And the big question will be, where do you get the dollars or the euros or the yen to finance that larger current account? Rich countries, and here I want to put some numbers uh, on my argument, rich countries are putting together anti-crisis packages that uh, are as high or as large as 10 points of GDP and by some accounts more. I don't think emerging markets can afford to be as ambitious, even though the needs are many. But say emerging markets were to put in emergency plans that required a larger government deficit to the tune of three points of GDP. And this would mean, leave the private sector frozen there for a minute, a larger current account deficit of about 3% of GDP. Let me give an example from Latin America, which is where I am from. 3% of Latin America's GDP is 168 billion US dollars. 168. If you go into the IMF website, which I did an hour and a half ago, and you look at the amounts that have been disbursed by the fund in response to the emergency, the total is less than 1 billion. And if you add up the ones that are in the pipeline, uh, you may get up to 5 billion. And if you look at the total capacity to lend by the IMF to Latin America, it is less than 1% of the region's GDP. That is to say we have a very, very large gap that is not going to be financed by business as usual. Minouche said this, the prime minister said this, Larry said this. I simply want to emphasize that even for a middle-income region like Latin America, this is a gigantic, gigantic issue. Yes, some countries have reserves. They can use those. Yes, some countries can probably borrow in international markets. But even after those two factors are taken into account, they are going to need a lot more help. So what next? There are many potential avenues for further financing, and I certainly will not take you down the list. Let me just emphasize two very quickly, and they have not been mentioned today, so they may merit a mention. One is a different kind of swap arrangements between the world's leading central banks and emerging markets. Under current arrangements by the Fed and other central banks, a very small group of EMs in Latin America, only Brazil and Mexico, elsewhere countries like Korea and Singapore, get to have swap arrangements with the Federal Reserve. And this is understandable because the Fed does not want to take on the risk associated with you know, a dozen or two dozen or three dozen emerging market economies. But the Fed could perfectly well take on IMF risk. And the IMF could have a swap arrangement which could be uh, put into place very, very quickly with, say, the Fed or the Bank of England or the European Central Bank or the Bank of Japan and in turn re-lend those uh, resources. In that case, the major central banks uh, have IMF risk on their books, not EM risk on their books. And the other, of course, big uh, issue is debt. Larry uh, said it very eloquently when it came to China, countries will not want to see their own money going to an emerging market to be used the next day to pay debt. That is true of debt owed to China, but that is also true of debt owed to private sector creditors. And as a result, 
it is hard to imagine a very large package going to emerging markets while emerging markets remain under great pressure to be current on debt payments. And as a result, hand in hand with greater resources, we will need some kind of debt standstill. We can argue for whom, what is the cutoff, what is the threshold, what about the upper middle income developing countries like my own, maybe a few countries could be exempt for that. But for most developing countries, for most emerging market economies, you cannot simply have money coming in and the next day having that money come out. That is not good for the economy. It is terrible for society and it is bad for politics. Let me end with one thought. Uh, the speakers who came before me uh, emphasized the potentially terrible death toll associated with not doing whatever it takes. The Imperial, um, the Imperial College numbers that Larry and Gordon cited uh, talk about about 1.5 million deaths in Latin America, Asia, and Africa put together. And Larry could well be right that those numbers are small, the actual death toll. I hope he's not right, but it could well be right that the actual death toll is much larger. There's another risk, and I will mention it and end here, and it is a political risk. Many bold things were done 10 years ago, but nonetheless, the world economy suffered a massive uh, contraction. Many people lost their homes, many people lost their jobs, and the political fallout from that has been terrible. There's been a worldwide backlash against liberal democracy, and we've seen the advent of populist authoritarian demagogues in rich countries, poor countries, East and West alike. If that happened uh, after a crisis whose size in the end ended up being contained, it could happen with more gravity and greater intensity if this crisis is not contained. So in addition to the death toll and to the tremendous human suffering that could occur, we're exposing ourselves to long lasting and potentially very toxic political consequences. And I think that's another reason to ask, sorry, to act and to act fast and to act bold. Let me stop there, Eric. Thank you very much, Andres. And we have a, a lot of questions coming in here and, and um, I want to try to give you a chance. So Mark Bowman has a question. Hello, I'm Mark Bowman um, uh, from the UK, UK Treasury. And um, uh, thank you very much, Eric, for inviting me to this to this group and to the excellent um, panelists. Um, I think, um, I mean, obviously, given the scale of this crisis, the, the case for massive international action is very uh, clear. So I don't think there's anything that has been said by the panelists that I want to um, disagree with. But as a as a representative of the UK government and having been involved in uh, the G20 and IMF discussions last week, I did want to make a couple of comments and. Um, thank you, Eric, for acknowledging the role that the UK had in the uh, the drafting of the G20 action plan that was agreed by by finance ministers. Um, my comments, two comments. First of all, on the health response, I mean, absolutely clear that this has to be a priority um, and financing the health response has to be a priority. I wouldn't declare um, failure on the eight billion um, yet, but clearly this this needs to be filled in the coming days and weeks. There are some positive signs, for example, with the um, the Saudi G20 presidency making a significant um, announcement in recent days. And from a UK perspective, we have been pushing this very hard, getting it onto the agenda of the finance minister discussions. 
in particular on vaccines. Um, the UK made a very significant contribution to the, the CEPI 2 billion campaign. Um, I think vaccines deserve, deserve a particular um, emphasis because I don't think I've talked to anyone who doesn't acknowledge that development of a vaccine will be part of the ultimate solution to this um, crisis. Um, and that is a very significant challenge, both in terms of financing, but also the logistical challenges around manufacturing um, and distribution need um, very significant international collaboration. Um, my, my second point on, on debt relief, um, I think there is a, there is a widespread acknowledgement that more will be necessary here and that what was agreed by the G20 last week is only the, the beginning. Um, I would, however, argue that um, what was agreed last week is a good base for further action, um, in particular because of the fact that this involved not just traditional Paris Club, um, uh, countries, but also the whole of the rest of the G20, um, including China, which I think is a is a significant development. And as I say, um, it does set a good base for, for for further action that is very likely to be possible, very likely to be necessary. So let me let me stop there. Thank you. Can I respond, um, Mark. Look, uh, where you stand depends on where you sit, and I've been in government, and I've made remarks like yours. And there's no question that people are working very hard. And there's no question that something uh, has been accomplished. But if the people who are listening to this program and the other people who are on your, uh, who are on this call were to take the position of mild satisfaction coupled with a bit of pride in what's been accomplished so far, it would, I think, be catastrophic. Yes, you're right. The G20 did agree, did agree on something. Yes, the UK has noticed that the world needs more health research in the face of, the hundred, of a 100-year pandemic. And yes, the UK did influence the G20 action plan. I have to say my reaction is basically bully for you. Um, people are dying. They're dying in large numbers. The current framework suggests that the middle-income countries of uh, the world whose debt is entirely untouched or uninfluenced by anything the G20 said have the potential to uh, bring down uh, the bring down the global economy, and if I may say so, if there is a substantial um, resentment um, about uh, the way governments work, and it is bringing populists to power, some of it does, as as Mr. Velasco suggested have something to do with the fact that too much money goes to too fortunate beneficiaries, but some of it goes to a uh, general disgust with self-satisfied, rounded, broad communiques at moments of incipient catastrophe that bring to mind uh, the British high command during the First World War. To let Mark in here, <laughs> Mark, you want to? 
I'm very, very happy to come back on that. I mean, I, I really just want to say there's no self-satisfaction in terms of what I, what I said. I wanted to highlight um, what the UK had been pushing last week and um, all of my comments uh, um, in the frame of very significant acknowledgement that more needs to be no, more more needs to be done so there's absolutely no self-satisfaction in my my remarks i'm i'm simply highlighting the singular lack of urgency in your tone stands out well that's that's um that's not correct and that's a misinterpretation but um, um I'm, I'm, I, I'm i'm sorry if that is that is how you interpreted it it is not at all how how i meant it can i just um, add uh, eric if it's possible for me to come in yes please yeah, Mark is a wonderfully committed uh, civil servant whom I've had the privilege to work with. I think uh, what he is uh, saying is that bit by bit, we're getting some of the action that is necessary. So Saudi, to its credit, put 500 million in last week for the health initiative. Britain put 300 million in a few days before. Other countries are doing uh, certain things, but it really needs to be coordinated really quickly. And I think... Uh, uh, Mark is also expressing uh, a desire for urgency that Larry's expressing. And I say the only way to do this is to get a pledging conference and to get it happening virtually in the next few days. And the European Union has suggested May the 4th as a date for, 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 for this. Uh, but the European Union cannot just have the European Union members there. They must bring in Japan. They must bring in Korea. They must then bring in America and China, Norway, uh, Canada. Africa is pushing for this, and I think this could happen uh, and be successful. But what we need is um, a coordinated push for this. I don't think this pledging will come now through the G20 on its own. I think you need a separate pledging conference uh, to, to deliver this, and the sooner we get that, the better. And I come back to what Andres uh, uh, said. We hear too many politicians at the moment saying, we're going to do whatever it takes. It was Maria Draghi's comment. It's what we said in 2009. Unless there is international coordination, all we can say is we're doing what we can. But if we had people working together, and if we had both the push on health and the push on the economy that Larry has been more eloquent than me in, in, in arguing for, uh, then we might be able to say we'll do whatever it takes. And we are doing whatever it takes. But you can't say that at the moment unless you get this international coordination in place and it's got to happen very quickly. So I say there's got to be a pledging conference on health, and there's got to be some form of G20 executive task force. Uh, the G20 can't just meet, uh, pass a communique. There's got to be some sort of task force that is implementing. I would have the head of the uh, IMF, World Bank, WHO, and uh, a UN uh, head on a group that includes representatives from the G20 leaders who are given some power to make executive decisions to get things moving particularly to stop the second and third round of disease coming out of the poorest countries. And when we talk of all the protections we put in place, when we talk about testing, when we talk about ventilators, when we talk about uh, social distancing, none of that is happening or is able to happen in most of the developing countries we're talking about. So we have to put resources into the health systems as quickly as possible. Can we have Naveed Hanif from the UN? Thank you, Eric, and thank you so much for the excellent presentations. And I just want to flag two things. The UN Secretary General, while he welcomed the G20's action as the first step, he has been very vocal on two fronts, the sense of urgency and the response that is commensurate with the challenge, both the health part, the economic part. 
And I must commend Andres for his very astute observation. The physical consequences could be very serious. The global economic order and the multilateral institutions that exist. So my question is to Larry and to Mr. Brown. Despite the UN Secretary General's repeated calls, we have not seen big powers coming behind him to advance the level of ambition of this response. And response is one thing. The recovery is, has to be far better. Recovery which is resilient and long-lasting. We saw the consequences of sharp fiscal consolidation after the 2009 crisis. Political ramifications were very serious. So I want to request commensurate response, solid recovery. What can we do for generate political momentum? Thank you, Eric. Thank you. Okay, can I collect a few questions? Uh, Jennifer Larby. Oh, hi there. Thank you. I put the um, question in the um, group. Um, and just to say thank you to all the panelists for your informative um, reflections. My question was about the um, African Union and what role it has been playing in coordinating efforts across the continent and how it could be better supported by uh, the G20 IMF and the World Bank. A lot of um, what they put forward is very ambitious. For example, they said that they want to see a million uh, tests rolled out in the next few days across the um, uh, across the continent, which is, of course, incredibly um, ambitious and expensive, but they're going to need the support of large international um, institutions. So just wanted some reflections from the panel on what that might look like and what is currently taking place. A, qu a question also from Heinz Scherer from the European Union, the European Commission. Thanks for putting me uh, on the audio. Uh, the question is uh, how such an SDR allocation that Prime Minister Brown mentioned should look like uh, technically so that uh, the money can go to low-income countries. Okay, can, uh, can I, the first question was really directed towards um, the Prime Minister and, and uh, Larry Summers. Uh, the question on, on um, Africa and the role of the AU, which I think is very important, uh, maybe Minush can take. And, and um, maybe, Andres, you, you can take the question on the SDR and the different possibilities. I think you, 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 can, you, you know what uh, the Prime Minister has in mind when he spoke about it. So please. Look, the, the UN Secretary General is <clears throat> basically right. Um, it is no secret that my country, and if I might, your country, has not distinguished itself recent, in recent years in its commitment to uh, international cooperation. Look, the truth is that the critics of the WHO are probably two thirds right in my view. And the decision to not fund the WHO is beyond unconscionable in the midst of this situation. Yes, the WHO needs to be improved in a hundred respects, but it's like Churchill said of democracy, uh, it's certainly better than any of the alternatives uh, in the midst of uh, a pandemic. And so it is vaguely understandable that at a moment when prejudices are running high and people are scared within individual countries, that leaders 
address themselves to that rather than recognizing uh, the longer term uh, historical imperatives. The Secretary General is is right to be trying to lift everybody's uh, sights. It is fair to say that he doesn't have to get elected by an electorate um, in uh, a country, and so it is easier for him to say that. It is easier for those in need to say they are in need than those faced with conflicting conflicting needs to balance between uh, those uh, needs. But Gordon had a phrase, used a phrase earlier that I've never heard before, but I will now use frequently uh, in the future about history condescending uh, for future uh, future historians uh, condescending uh, to us. And just as um, future, just as current uh, historians uh, defend, uh, condescend to James Buchanan, who was Lincoln's predecessor, and future histor- and historians condescend to Herbert Hoover, who was FDR's uh, predecessor, I suspect historians will condescend uh, to uh, the current uh, president of, uh, the, of the United States. I think the stakes here are immense, and I think the stake that has not yet been articulated, um, but that also needs to be mentioned, is the failures of the G7 countries here, which are manifest, are opening the door for those with very different values and an orientation to a very different system to fill a large vacuum. My guess is that those countries' failures will also be immense and so they will not really walk effectively through that door and fill that vacuum. But I'm not certain of that. And it certainly doesn't excuse leaving uh, that door open uh, for uh, China. But I think the Secretary General is right. I do think, because I always like try to see two sides of things, I think if I might say it to you, though you won't like it, um, the fact that there's never been a moment when the UN has seen funding for developing countries as involving some waste or promoting corruption or available inadequate supply makes it a somewhat less credible voice than would be ideal at a moment uh, like this, because there's a certain side and set of positions that UN's always for more debt relief. And it's, it's, you're less compelling being for debt relief when it's your regular position. And I think that is an aspect that makes the UN less effective right now than it might otherwise be. But I think what the Secretary General is saying is hugely important to say and is not being heeded sufficiently. Mr. Prime Minister, I, I think I think Larry is right 
when you look at what Antonio Guterres has been saying, but also what Cristalino Georgieva, David Malpass, the head of the WHO, they've all been saying, we've got to remember that these international institutions are in effect run by the shareholders. Uh, and it depends on the political leadership in the main countries of the world. And if America is blocking some action, then the other countries have got to get together now and find a way through. And that's why I suggest a pledging conference. That's why I've suggested a G20 task force. I mean, America in a unipolar age was acting multilaterally generally. And America in a multipolar age now is acting unilaterally. But that may change. And I've seen evidence of American public opinion that people actually do understand that this is a global as well as local and national health emergency and does need global cooperative action. So I would say in 2009, it wasn't obvious we'd get the G20 together. Uh, originally, people were opposing uh, creating the leaders G20. Uh, we found it difficult to get agreement on a remit. We found it difficult to get agreement on a membership. And in fact, 23 people turned up at the first meeting and not 20. And I think the interesting thing is that if you keep trying and if you keep pushing, you will in the end get results. And that's why I say, if you can't find one way uh, to solve this problem and you're running into a barrier, find another way. Uh, look at other ways of doing it. And uh, the Pledging Conference is one, uh, an action force is another, getting together all the leaders of the major institutions, but having some political leaders, whether it's from the European Union or whether it's Japan uh, and, and whether it's uh, uh, them pulling in China and America, you've got to find a way around this. I mean, Gorbachev, I think, said on his gravestone, he wanted to have only two words. We tried. And I think we've got to keep trying. It may not be working as well with the announcements of President Trump at the moment, but you cannot give up. This is, as Larry says, too big a crisis. We are going to be judged too harshly for failure. So we cannot afford to give up. We've got to keep trying and get the international cooperation that is essential, absolutely essential, if we're going to have an exit from this problem. You know, just, just to add one thing to what Gordon has just said, I mean, I think, um, I think uh, the Kyoto process has already shown that the rest of the world can come together, even if the U.S. is not engaging and try and make progress. And I think this pandemic is another example where those who are willing to act but should show leadership and then on the question on the African Union, uh, the president of the African Union, Cyril Ramaphosa, just announced the appointment of four special envoys, Ngozi Okonjo-Owela, Donald Kabaruka, Trevor Manuel, and Tijan Tiam, who are an impressive foursome to try and mobilize support for Africa to deal with this crisis. I think they have three jobs to do. One is to secure a very generous uh, debt relief package, two, to mobilize support for the health response, through the existing international organizations, WHO, Gavi, Global Fund, World Bank, et cetera. And three, to include in that support a mechanism to support the very poorest households in Africa to make sure that their basic needs are met uh, throughout this crisis because they will suffer a huge income hit as a result of, as a result of COVID. Andreas on SDRs and how to... Yes, um... The criticism that is often voiced against an allocation of SDRs of either 600 billion or perhaps 1 trillion is that uh, 
many would end up in the hands of countries that don't need them and not so many would end up in the hands of countries that need them urgently. That is a misguided criticism for at least two reasons. The first one, and I'm going to echo what Larry said earlier, that this is a moment to get it wrong on the side of generosity, meaning if some countries that don't necessarily need the SDRs end up with those SDRs in their reserves, whether this be you know, not so poor uh, developing countries like Brazil or Indonesia or Mexico, that's fine. I'm sure they will find a use for that money. It'll certainly not be inflationary. Inflation is the last thing we should be worrying about in the midst of a massive and unprecedented global contraction. The other reason why that claim is misguided is that it is not hard to think of mechanisms for the redistribution of those SDRs so that they don't necessarily get allocated proportionally to quota. Several people have uh, put, uh, pushed for the idea that there could be a common pool either within the fund or outside the fund but overseen by the fund. Yes, they would, this would call on some countries to give up on their allocation or lend their allocation to other nations. I see nothing wrong with that. Or alternatively, there is a plan uh, that uh, George Soros and other people have uh, put on the table that suggests you could have a trust fund uh, outside the IMF. Countries could contribute uh, their SDR allocations to the trust fund and the low-income countries in need, whether in South Asia or in Central America or in Sub-Saharan Africa, could withdraw from the trust fund and use those resources. There are many ways of getting around the technical obstacles. It can be done. What we need is political will, and regrettably, that is exactly what's been missing in the last few days. Thank you very much. We have questions here. I just want to acknowledge one question um, from, the, um, from Facebook, since they cannot come in themselves. So there's a, a question about, you know, we are talking about reforming the, the global system. We are uh, talking about increasing the resources for these uh, key institutions. Are we setting us up for failure if we don't manage now to do this? And the, the parallel, this is George Anyatos. He says, you know, it's a response up to, up to now similar to setting up of the League of Nations in the aftermath of the World War, which eventually failed to deliver. So what, what more do we need in place? And, and can we avoid that we, we uh, have sort of inherent flaws of the existing institutions that will will make it impossible to deliver what is necessary now? Or, or put it another way, do, do we need um, fundamental reforms of these institutions to deliver what is needed now? Larry. Look, I, I think it's a very thoughtful question and it had several aspects to it. And in a way, um, Gordon and I have been aligned, but in a slightly different, but with a slightly different uh, tonality. And the point was maybe, important point was maybe brought up more clearly uh, by the question for, questioner uh, from uh, the British Treasury. Everybody's got their role in at a moment uh, like, uh, like this. Uh, Woodrow Wilson had a highly idealistic vision of the League of Nations. It was a historic catastrophe. He didn't get the thing he wanted. 
the United States wasn't part of it. There was no effective um, uh, institution except for a Potemkin bit of grandiosity, and the whole thing failed. Wilson was mostly kind of right about a lot of his things, but the world just didn't want to do it, and it wasn't able to coalesce around what it could do. And so there's always a tension whenever you set a goal between, whenever you set a goal in political life, between setting a goal that is the right, ideal, optimal goal that will never be achieved and there will be a sense that you can't be satisfied and demoralizing the effort and setting a goal that is short of what is necessary. If you want to make a donkey go forward, you have to hold the carrot an optimal degree from its nose. If you hold it too far, it just doesn't notice and it gives up. And if you hold it too close, you don't move it forward and there's kind of a balance. And that's what's always involved in moments like this. And if you're and what the right thing for any individual to do is sort of depends on their position. If you're currently on the outside in the way that I am, your instinct is very much to set a very ambitious uh, goal and not be satisfied. If you're on the inside and you have to negotiate with Congress or you have to negotiate with other countries, then you want to have a theory of how you're going to get to some place that you actually can get to and have the agreement uh, come together. And that's part of the reason why different people sound differently. Yes, um, I think you're. I think there is a concern that excessive ambition can just be discouraging. On the other hand, I don't think that's our currently pressing danger. I think our currently pressing danger. Is that the is that the sights in international life have been set too low, and the reason why Gordon and I emphasized in our piece um, the domestic efforts that people were making is precisely because it's not that we're in a moment where ambition is impossible and vision is inconceivable, and so what I think Gordon and I are having common is that we're looking to an international level of vision that's in the same universe as the domestic level of vision. Yeah, and, and this is probably not the time to have a rerun of the debate between globalists and nationalists. This is the time <laughs> for uh, urgent action to deal with a specific set of problems that have arisen. And, you know, you've got America first, you've got China first, you've got India first, you've got Russia first, you've got Hungary first, you've got all these uh, first uh, uh, movements. What we, I think, have got to do is to show people that what is happening to them locally and what's happening to the families, what's happening to the communities, uh, the risks that they face are directly affected by what is actually happening out there, particularly in countries which run the risk uh, of being so unprotected that a second and third round, a second and third wave of the disease is going to hit the rest of the world. And I think we've got to show people uh, that this is practical common sense at the moment, uh, that the global uh, solutions uh, are also necessary 
for every individual country to be able to solve their own problems. And so I wouldn't rerun a debate at the moment between globalists and nationalists. I would concentrate on the fe- what Martin Luther King, I think, called the fierce urgency of now. There is such a thing as being too late, and we're in danger of being too late in dealing with the global consequences that have got to be dealt with if we're going to prevent this becoming as big a problem as it seems to be, not just now, but in the future. Minoush had a quick comment. Just a quick thing. You know, I think also, of course, the international institutions need reform and they're not perfect, but you don't try and change them in the midst of a crisis. And, you know, having worked on the Eurozone crisis where we had no institutions for crisis management and we were having to build them in the middle of a crisis, I don't recommend that as a strategy because it takes too long. In this case, we actually have a set of institutions that can deliver development finance and health financing uh, and help with crisis management. Let's just use them. Okay, I think we have come to full time and uh, we have had... uh, a very interesting and, and very, uh, I thought, thought-provoking debate. The, Gordon Brown described it as the, our rendezvous with destiny and that uh, you know, this generation will be judged on how we manage to deal with this crisis. And uh, he also pointed out this systemic problem that the, these institutions are constrained by their shareholders and we can't get the shareholders to move they cannot move either. So we, I think the, all the words today are really about trying to get shareholders um, to, to do what it takes. And of course, as someone said, you know, not very few countries, maybe the US can do whatever it takes for the world, but not even that any longer. We need to do whatever it takes. We need a global effort. And, and that is, I think, the conclusion of this debate. So thank you very much.